0: This podcast is brought to you by DIA, the trusted global neutral forum for healthcare product
1: development
2: professionals. DIA, driving insights to action. Another impactful year for precision medicine has passed against a backdrop of disruptive technologies that advance disease diagnostics and therapies. And it's time, once again, for a conversation with our Global Forum co-editors for Translational Science to discuss the milestones we've seen in 2021 and their implications for translational science in 2022. I am Alberto Grignolo, Editor-in-Chief of DIA Global Forum, and I'm joined today by two experts in this field. Dr. David Parkinson, who serves as President, Chief Executive Officer, and Director of ESSA Pharmaceuticals, and Dr. Gary Kelloff, who has more than 40 years of cancer research experience at the U.S. National Cancer Institute. In their roles as co-editors, Gary and David have made it possible for us to receive and publish several timely and truly fascinating articles this year. Thank you both for joining us today and welcome.
0: Thank you, Alberto. Thank you.
2: David, if I may start with you. Reviewing precision medicine and other advances in 2021, what jumps out at you as the most significant or impactful milestones in translational science and why?
1: Well, yes, Alberto, uh, in reflecting on this, I, I would say it's the increasing recognition and implementation of the biological characterization tools that we'll be talking about over the next few minutes across the range of oncology medicine, which I know best, but clinical medicine increasingly, and the use also of these same tools for the more efficient development of more effective therapeutics. It's actually rather extraordinary. Um, It's taken so long for us to get to this stage, but now the accumulated evidence of the power of biological characterization of individual patients for the application of biologically targeted agents is very clear. We now also have databases that come out of both academia and industry that include more than hundreds of thousands of patients, many of them clinically annotated, that start to allow us with new kinds of tools such as machine learning, artificial intelligence, to begin to interrogate these databases and understand more deeply the relationship between the biology of tumors, the biology of therapeutic actions, the relationships between those two, the evolution of tumors under therapeutic pressure from targeted agents. And ultimately, the outcome will be to the benefit of patients, which is, of course, is what we're all here for. So, you know, um, ASCO this year, I guess 2021, it still declared the um, advance of the year to be molecular characterization of GI tumors. You could apply the same to prostate cancer, to lung cancer. It's happening all across the board. But the fact of the matter is this is now real. The tools have improved to the point that they are very, very impressive. That's a holistic kind of approach to your answer. But I would say that for me, um, the message is very clear. I'd be interested in Gary's perspective on this.
2: Uh, Gary, yes, I'm asking you the same question. And specifically, is the innovation um, that we're witnessing accelerating? Is the curve becoming steeper in a good way?
0: I think it is accelerating. I think it's in part a recognition of the potential from a... uh, Uh, intellectual property point of view, I I would say the diagnostic companies, although generally were funded by pharma or VCs, have building a business model that has its own importance now. And you see this in many fields and certainly agree with David's comments about the trends. Definitely accelerating, I would say. As far as 2021 and even before that, the immuno-oncology paradigm for cancer is getting better and better um, and understanding the immune system. The international collaboration that you see from uh, Richelski's paper on Tudruka, where he's working with the Dutch and Canadians, and also uh, the AACR initiative with Charles Sawyers that David sat a part in. Uh, you've got uh, TCGA from many years ago that really provided the sequence technologies, and it, it told all of us how heterogeneous c- the cancer targets are one from another, and they're quite different within the target organ and across target organs. You've got uh, molecular targets, probably lung map. Lung is probably... With about eight actionable targets for which there are drugs, is probably the highest number, but these other target organs are coming. You've got wearables for how a patient functions. So it should support some approvals. And I would last, I would say just this week, very, very interesting the molecular imaging probes that are available for better management of disease. In, in ovary, uh, we learned 20 years ago that you don't find ovary early, and the surgeon goes in and tries to debulk the ovarian cancer, and he, there's a lot of micromets that he doesn't see, and therefore, th- these are the lesions that cause the recurrences. And now you have an imaging probe that will probably find very, very small amounts of disease, and hopefully, it'll help the debulking procedure, and therefore, the recurrence of ovarian cancer. So uh, smart imaging probes is certainly a trend.
2: Wonderful news. Thanks for sharing that, Gary. Uh, David, back to you. Earlier this year in Global Forum, we published uh, two articles on cancer growth kinetics and its implications for novel anti-cancer therapeutics. May I ask you, David, why is the pattern of growth such an important, but perhaps unappreciated aspect of cancer, and how can we use it?
1: Well, I must say, I found these two articles to be incredibly interesting and important. The first is uh, these two articles by by Drago and Norton. Um, The first is a general discussion of of concepts of cancer growth kinetics and how those concepts have been applied to cancer chemotherapy and really instructive in the huge advances that were made in the late 80s, 90s with uh, breast cancer adjuvant therapy in particular. The second uh, is more speculative, uh, but applies those same principles to a whole new area of therapeutics, antibody-dependent conjugates. And I found that really interesting because the point they make is that targeted therapy is one thing, but understanding targeted therapy in the context of tumor biology is an additional potential step forward for more efficient use of the the agents. You know, reading this, I'm somebody who came through the chemotherapy era. That's what I grew up as. And to hear uh, reviews and perspectives on the work of of these intellectual giants, Skipper and Shabel and Goldie and Coldman and norton and and uh, Simon, by the way, the same Larry Norton, who is one of the authors of this article, is fantastic. Uh, I, I highly recommend those articles to readers as a very efficient way of getting an overview of the potential importance of these principles, not just historically, in terms of the better use of chemotherapy, but looking forward, uh, potentially for the better use of antibody drug conjugates.
2: So gross kinetics uh, should help therapeutics, I mean, patients should benefit from the this, who
1: are absolutely integrated in the case of chemotherapy, it relates more to the kinetics itself, the proliferative state of the tumor, because that's a lot of the mechanism of action of uh, cytotoxics. In the case of antibody-dependent conjugates, in my reading um, and their speculation, it's more related to the kinetics as related to the stage of growth of the tumor, the relationship of the outside surface area of the tumor to the internal mass of the tumor. Absolutely fascinating, really important, very stimulating reading.
2: Gary, let me turn to you on a different topic. There seems to be an ever-growing toolbox of highly accurate precision medicine technologies and molecular diagnostics, including innovative imaging techniques, machine learning, and artificial intelligence approaches. What do you see as the most important technological progress in disease diagnostics and therapy that will eventually make it into routine clinical care?
0: I would say the sensitivity of the diagnostic assays is getting better and better. The ALU sequences can measure targets in in as much as a drop of blood. And so the the sensitivity is coming along. So is the analytical validation to satisfy all of us uh, from a hard science point of view, including the FDA, that the measures are reliable. Uh, Certainly anything you can get out of the blood, the And plasma, the liquid biopsies, account for a lot. And there's so much activity in this area. Uh, We specifically have been very interested in volumetric CT because we felt that it would call responses better than than unidimensional resist as a measurement of progression of disease. And we've had testimonials at FDA that confirm that where our clinicians are telling us, we, we looked at the patient, we could see they weren't doing well, so we continued the therapy, and yet uh, the resist patterns didn't match, but the volumetric CT did match with the clinical impression. So we think all of this being integrated into standardized data sets, as, as David said, and you see Rich Shilsky's collaboration with the Canadians at Dutch, they're really integrating drug target organ in histology and looking at the genome landscape. So paper at ASCO and all these international uh, attempts to to look at large data sets, make sure they're standardized and annotated, and tying together the diagnostics with therapy management. I think it's it's a phenomenal time to be in cancer research right now. Uh,
2: Gary, are liquid biopsies now part of routine cancer care, or are they still at the research stage?
0: Well, I would say both. The more standardized assays that have past muster uh, are being used more and more in terms of the NCCN guidelines in terms of the ability to use certain assays. That having been said, there's a tremendous amount of research about sensitivity, newer assays, newer ways to measure. So um, it's not only cells, but RNAs, microRNAs, exosomes. Uh, There's a lot of analytes that are the target of blood-based assays, and certainly some are approved already. So it's a very dynamic area right now.
2: David, you are on the industry side, so wondering about your perspective on what Gary was opining about, and specifically, are some of these newer technologies making their way into cancer drug development?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, cytotoxic chemotherapy development was informed by histologic characterization, but clearly in this era of biologically targeted therapeutics, they're informed by molecular characterization. And the article by, by Ali and, and Miller I think it's pretty informative. It summarizes the value of and the incorporation of DNA sequencing into both development and registration and clinical use in the context of one particular example, which is the ALK uh, mutated uh, patients with non-small cell lung cancer. But generalizing beyond that, they talk about the positives, but also the challenges largely related to accessibility and related to uh, affordability to the broader patient population. Um, I would add on top of that, that this is just the beginning, that DNA characterization, sequence characterization, definition of actionable uh, mutations is really a definition of structure with biology being basically, you know, intuited. We now have the opportunity with, as Gary alluded to, liquid biopsies that allow from 20 cc's of blood, whole exomic sequencing, whole transcriptomic sequencing. And so therefore the opportunity into deep DNA and RNA interrogation, the opportunity for real biology characterization, and that has fantastic opportunities for drug development, for patient diagnosis and prognostication, but also for the longitudinally monitoring of patients because this relationship between therapeutics, biologically targeted therapeutics and and tumor biology is an iterative one. The one affects the other. Things do not remain static. Patients' tumor biology evolves under therapeutic pressure. We need to have tools that respond to that by being longitudinally informative as patients' biology changes. This is a new game. We're at the beginning of a new era, in my opinion. And what I really have liked uh, seeing is that on both the academic side and the industry side, attention is being paid to standardization to quality control to developing databases that are of regulatory use not just for publishing papers but of regulatory use for drug uh, approval and that to me is why i went into this field is to get the biology into real world therapeutic applications so it's to quote gary a terrific time in the field
2: David, what you say resonates with me. We have a family friend who has uh, lung cancer, and the immunotherapy applied to her is uh, beginning to not work anymore after one year. Mm. And so yeah. this speaks to, does it uh, to durability of response and, and even why. the best drugs of yeah. today, after a while, don't work anymore. That so, is maybe.
1: correct. That is absolutely correct. You have you, that example tells the entire tale,
2: Alberta. Sadly, for the person in question. Uh, David, I'll stay with you. um, And staying with targeted and other precision therapies for a moment, Uh, non small cell lung cancer has very much emerged as a paradigm for precision oncology. But comprehensive genomic profiling has shown great promise in other cancers as well. Uh, David, any comment on that?
1: Yeah, uh, just a few comments in addition to what I've already said. Uh, There's a nice article by Bill uh, Nelson uh, talking about prostate cancer as a particular example. I alluded to ASCO uh, selecting GI cancer uh, biological profiling as as of the advance of the year from their perspective. I have had the privilege of sitting on the scientific advisory board of Keras, which is a large diagnostic company. And I've watched over the years while they have sequenced first at the DNA level and then also at the RNA level, you know, more than 250,000 patients, most of them clinically annotated. And so you begin to understand the biology of tumors across the population. That allows, to Gary's point, when you conduct a liquid biopsy assay, to refer back to the experience from solid tumor characterization. So all these different lines of evidence start to come together and start to provide very powerful tools, which in the future will inform more efficient drug development and more effective clinical medicine. I think um, the pace is accelerating as the tools have improved. And most importantly, well, equally importantly, the analytical tools to actually deal with the enormous amount of data that's being generated. Uh, So the advent of artificial intelligence is not a gimmick. It is necessary. In order to understand uh, this very complicated biological uh, setting,
2: Gary, you're at NIH. You see a broad landscape. Uh, What other cancers can benefit from this approach? From what do you see?
0: Well, David mentioned the focus at ASCO on GI. Uh, Lung is probably, as we've said, there's eight or so molecular targets that are actionable. Uh, But you see every day new things in different target organs. I think TCGA. Uh, was a very, very good project because it took 200 or so target organs and looked at at each of the target organs, and you see the diversity uh, within and across target organs. I think part of the increasing progress, as David mentioned, Keras is one of the superior labs out there. Uh, There's a general diffusion of assays, the ones more mature that are being used by the laboratory industry. So therefore, uh, uh, physicians have access to these assays. And so you see the volume of these growing. You also see the insurers trying to get their uh, hands around what makes most sense to them. And generally, they'll follow clinical utility and the FDA lead. But in general, they have some very good scientists on CMMS that are trying to get their arms around what makes the most sense for reimbursement. And once the feds and the public sector supported uh, reimbursement takes hold, then generally the private insurers follow that.
2: Gary, I'll stay with you. And let's take a closer look at the role of patients. Over the last decade or so, we've seen a great deal of progress in assessing, analyzing and visualizing patient reported outcomes, such as symptomatic adverse events. But have there been any recent advancements in the rigorous use of other types of patient generated data, such as on physical function, and changes in disease specific symptoms?
0: Gary. Well, of course, the patient-reported outcomes have been of very high interest for a long time. As Bob Temple defined clinical utility is how patient feels, functions, or survives, and that's the basis that the FDA uses to make a approval decision. Generally, most of our data is survival, but more and more you see a fields and functions becoming more of an issue, and the tools to measure that are getting better. You have a lot of uh, remote tools where you can measure people's function, and uh, with the data density, you can record how much activity a patient has in a day, and therefore make a conclusion about how they're functioning. Uh, so, Paul Kloitz and uh, and Laurie Menasian wrote a paper for us this year that described the, uh, the interaction between the FDA and NCI in terms of trying to get a handle on patient-reported outcomes criteria and, and the adverse events, and that's a public database now.
2: Was there interaction productive between FDA and NIH, Gary?
0: I think they have PRO, that's patient-reported outcome, uh, common talks criteria, so... In general, I would say it it was productive and generally and publicly available and could be useful for many. You see a lot of growth of the nonprofits where you see a lot of of focus on patient reported outcomes where the patient is the the issue, you know, and uh, trying to make their life better. So there's a lot of interest in PROs for sure.
2: David, uh, from your perspective on the industry side, patient is the center of everything, of course. What about patient reported outcomes? Has that landscape expanded from what you've seen?
1: Yeah, well, you're absolutely correct, Alberto. I mean, the whole point of the exercise is the patient and uh, the best therapeutics are ones that are going to not just extend patients' lives, which is easier to measure, but improve the quality of patients' lives, which is much, much more difficult to measure historically. It's expensive. The tools have been challenging to use, uh, even more challenging to interpret. The classic problem with these kinds of uh, elements have been uh, missed data, and so you have to impute data. So these kinds of activities and the relationship between NIH and and the FDA are, are really very important. We need tools that can help with more compliance with respect to data information and are informative about what therapeutics are really doing for patients as opposed to two patients. So, you know, I think the industry would be extremely supportive of this. Uh, in general, anything that helps develop better tools to measure the effects of our therapeutics on patients would have to be considered to be very welcome.
2: Let's uh, move to the final question, and uh, while we thank you for the wonderful articles you have uh, provided for us uh, in 2021, we look forward to the articles you will provide for us in 2022, so it's now crystal ball time, and so I'm going to ask both of you, what other translational science topics will be top of mind in importance in the coming year? Gary, would you like to take first crack at this?
0: Yes, yeah, thank you. So, I think the minimal residual disease, that is Uh, how little uh, of the disease spilled in the blood uh, and sometimes the bone marrow is possible to make actionable decisions about uh, therapy management. I would say that multiple myeloma and MGUS monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance Uh, was highlighted a few years ago. And what was interesting to me was the incidence of MGUS in the uh, so-called elderly population. So if you're 70 or so, you have a very good chance of having a monoclonal peak that's abnormal. And and some percentage of those uh, will develop multiple myeloma in their lifetime. And and a lot of work has been done on multiple myeloma. And now it's, you survive eight years with a clinical diagnosis instead of three. There's plenty of drugs. So the idea that you might be able to use some of these drugs or other drugs and technologies to get to disease earlier is very promising. So that's MGUS, uh, Hemonc, I would say Hemonc, 15% of the cancer burden, probably where you get quantitative measurements, probably a little ahead of, of the solid cancers. MicroRNAs, you know, Carla Croce uh, described the first ones many years ago. It's you've got about 2% of the genome that makes messenger RNA, and there's a, a sort of a black box, and microRNA accounts for a lot of this. The function of microRNAs is getting better. The number of microRNAs being measured is better. So interesting. Early diagnosis is a third area. We mentioned the sensitivity of the assays and the blood based assays. I would say the increasing integration of different assays into large databases that are standardized and annotated, the complementary nature, say, of imaging probes and uh, blood-based diagnostic probes there. So uh, probably precision medicine is most, uh, lung, as we've said a few times, is, is the most successful. But there's a lot of work going on in these other target organs. Immuno-oncology will try to understand why after one year people become resistant. We understand evolution, but we don't quite understand what actionable decisions need to be made. I would say uh, last, the COX-1 and COX-2, cyclooxygenase 1 and 2 are in the pathway for prostaglandins. It's clear that they have some role in cancer progression. That's why aspirin is prescribed and works, but you get the COX-1 GI bleeding and the COX-2 specific inhibitors. Unbeknownst to us, we, we found uh, toxicity at about two years in the highest dose. Uh, there were cardiovascular toxicities. It was all in the high dose and you could probably select based on today's knowledge who shouldn't get the drug. And so you got aspirin, some toxicity, probably some improvement in early intervention that could be done. And last, I would say there's an explosion, as David said, of of artificial intelligence, a large data sets, integration of conclusions. So exciting times, and we'll look forward to next year, Alberta. Yeah, indeed, David, please yeah. your perspective, your crystal ball. What is it telling you?
1: Yeah, well, I certainly would agree with Gary's list, uh, and and maybe I would I would say, what are the sort of important characteristics of the advances that I expect to see? Well, one is greater sensitivity in looking at small cell populations, the MRD situation Gary alluded to. But then speaking generally, greater attention paid to physiological characterization as opposed to structural characterization. Tumor biology is physiology or pathophysiology. Therapeutics are against pathophysiology. They are generally not against structure, except for certain classes. And so you're going to see an emphasis on RNA characterization, imputation of the biology associated with that, using tools like artificial intelligence, defining mechanisms of biological resistance. And so, you know, bringing together, as Gary indicated, a lot of these different technologies, tools, analytical uh, approaches to understand better this relationship between therapeutics and response to therapeutics or non-response. So that's a general answer to, to the perfect list that, that Gary just presented. But I think that's what you're going to see the trend uh, very, very clearly is towards.
2: Very well. So much uh, to be discovered and reported in 2022. Um, this is the end of our conversation. Thank you for your good work for many years now for the IA Global Forum, and particularly in 2021, a challenging year as 2020 was, and uh, we really thank you for all your efforts. And we look forward to your contributions and those of the authors you will identify in the coming year, and we'll plan to have another conversation a year from now to see what 2022 will have brought us by then. Thank you, Alberto. <laughs> thank David, you. thank you very much. Gary, thank you as well, and happy holidays. Thank you.
0: Happy holidays, thank, thank you
2: as well. For DIA Global Forum, I'm Alberto Grignolo. To learn more about this topic, visit us online at DIA Global.org.